Dear Heavenly Father, as we come this evening to the ninth chapter of Romans, help me to make clear what you first have made clear in your word. Help us to listen not with a view merely to uh, getting smarter, but Lord, with a view to becoming more burdened for lost people and more aware of what you have done for us to give us your marvelous salvation. So help me, Lord, and help my brothers and sisters as we now come to your word. May it have final authority and not a man in a pulpit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The message is called Weeping Witnesses, and the subtitle, Israel's Past, Elect of God, and Paul's Sorrow. There was a theologically liberal church that somehow managed to have two conservative Bible-believing pastors come to be pastor. A man said to his friend, who was a member of that church, I hear you dismissed your pastor. What was wrong? Well, he kept telling us we were going to hell. The friend questioned on, you have a new pastor? Yes. What does he say? He says we're going to hell too. But the first man almost seemed glad about it, and the second pastor cries about it. Weeping witnesses. In Romans 9, 1 to 5, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, directly addresses his unbelieving countrymen, his unregenerate fellow Jews, and he expresses to them his grave and sincere concern that they are lost under the wrath of God and bound for hell except they believe in Yeshua, Jesus, Messiah, and God's grace interpose for them and provide for them salvation. Romans 9, 1 to 5 presents the concept of being a weeping witness. And I pray that we would understand tonight that we are still like Paul today. We are to be weeping witnesses, people who know the truth, people who believe the truth, people who speak the truth, but who have tender hearts and wet eyes over those who are not yet in the truth. When Paul wrote Romans 9, 1 to 5, he fully knew that he was a recipient of God's grace and accordingly that he himself was bound for heaven. But equally, the apostle knew as he wrote these verses that his countrymen, his kin, his nation, in the vast majority were not in the safe harbor of Christ. They were not forgiven. They were not yet saved. They were bound for hell except they turned to Christ. And this whole reality broke his heart. I invite your attention to Romans 9, the first five verses. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Great sorrow and unceasing grief are the words that Paul chose. Great sorrow and unceasing grief. Truly, these words convey a real empathy. Empathy is feeling someone else's pain in your heart. If you are an empathetic person, you are a person who readily feels someone else's pain in your heart. Paul had empathy as a weeping witness, and we must have empathy for the lost around us in Nassau. I will be honest with you that empathizing is exhausting. Empathizing is exhausting work. A study has been done, I believe it was in an Ivy League college many years ago, that four hours of empathizing is the equivalent of 10 hours of hard physical labor. If you empathize with an individual for four hours, you will be as tired as, as, as if you had dug a ditch with a shovel for 10 hours. Empathizing is very hard work. And the truth is that because of sin and the fall of man into sin and a fallen world, that there are certain individuals that psychologists call sociopaths who are actually incapable of empathy. A sociopath is incapable of feeling anyone else's pain in their heart. And so we have serial killers and the like. Paul, when he considered his countrymen, the Jews, who had not turned to Yeshua, Messiah, Jesus, as Paul had on the road to Damascus, he had empathy. He said, I have great sorrow. I have unceasing grief in my heart. I feel their pain in my heart. Yes, Paul had Holy Spirit empathy over Israel's lostness and sin. He felt his countrymen's pain in his own heart. And of course, our Lord and Savior had perfect empathy. He was perfectly empathetic, was our Lord Jesus Christ. As he looked over Jerusalem before the cross and said in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hand gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. If we will be weeping witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must have a God-embreded empathy. It's one thing to know that someone is lost, but it's quite another thing to shed tears over their lostness in times of intercessory prayer for their souls on our knees. Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief over my countrymen. 
in the close to 30 years that I have been greatly privileged to serve as a pastor, I have officiated a lot of funerals. The ones for people who have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation are especially difficult funerals, especially at the gravesides, at the cemeteries. The committal verse I often use in such a situation when I'm uncertain about whether or not the deceased was saved are two verses found in John 5. Jesus' words in John 5, 28 and 29 come to that gravesite for the person I know who has rejected Christ or I do not know has accepted Christ. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds, that is believing on the Son and receiving salvation to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I'm here to say that I know that there'll be many pastors who have a lot of answering to do when they have preached funerals for people who have rejected Jesus Christ and have preached those people into heaven. Of course, the scriptures describe hell. The Greek term is Gehenna. It occurs 12 times in the New Testament. Gehenna, or hell, according to the New Testament, is a place of everlasting punishment. Mark 12, 38 to 40. Hell is a place of conscious torment, Luke 16, verse 23. And that conscious torment is for the whole person, body, soul, and spirit, Mark 9, 47 and 48. Hell is a place of unending, intense flame and heat, Luke 16, 24. And there's no bridge from hell into heaven, Luke 16, verse 26. And hell is a never-ending confinement and pain, according to Matthew 5, 29 and 30. A redeemed child of God telling jokes about hell or laughing at jokes about hell is inappropriate. It's as inappropriate as phoning dinner reservations to McDonald's ahead of getting there. It doesn't make any sense. Given this grim reality, with respect to the destination of all those who pass into eternity without Jesus and his salvation, our hearts, like Paul's heart before us, should feel great sorrow and unceasing grief. Look at verse 3, please. It gives us two concrete reasons why Israel without Christ was in such dire straits. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. There are two concrete reasons why Israel without Jesus Christ was in such dire straits. Number one, they were accursed. And number two, they were separated from Christ. People today, Jew or Gentile, without salvation in Christ are still accursed and they are still separated from Christ. What does this mean? The people without Jesus, Jew or Gentile, what does it mean that they are accursed? What does it mean that they are separated from Christ? The Greek word, which is translated accursed, 
literally means dedicated to destruction. Dedicated to destruction or delivered up to the judgment of God. When a person outside of faith in Christ, outside of salvation that God has provided, when that person is said to be accursed, that person is said to be dedicated to destruction unless something changes. Delivered up to the judgment of God unless something changes. Holy God, as you well know, cannot and will not wink at sin. God will not and cannot wink at Jewish sin, and God will not and cannot wink at Gentile sin, because God is holy, and because God is holy, he must judge a person's sin. Either once for all on the cross, or forever and ever in hell. Either way, every individual sin is going to be judged. And the choice as to how our sin is judged is made by us in time, real time, on earth before we die. Either we turn to a Savior in desperation and faith and say, pay for my sin debt, Lord Jesus, as you have on the cross with your precious blood, or we say, I'll go it alone. I'll pay my own way. Which means conscious, unending, scaled torture in a real place called hell. There's only two ways that sin can be paid for. Sin must be paid for, either by the Savior on the cross for you or by yourself going it alone forever in torment in hell. God is holy. If God failed to judge evil, he would fail to be holy. Lost people unregenerate people, people who are not yet saved or converted people, Jewish or Gentile, are accursed. They are dedicated to destruction unless something changes. They are delivered up to the judgment of God unless something changes. But there's more. As tragic as that is, there is more. Not only are they accursed, but number two, they are separated from Christ. Both Jews and Gentiles who are not yet in the safe refuge of Jesus Christ's finished work are said to be separated from Christ in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Someone has correctly observed that the best gospel witnesses are the people who have never forgotten what it was like for them when they didn't have Jesus. Do you remember what that was like for you? When you didn't have a savior? You didn't have a hope? You didn't have a life message? Do you remember what that was like? The best witnesses are the believers who never forget what it was like before they were a believer. Before you and I had Jesus as Savior, we were in a state of total depravity. We were as bad off before a holy God as we could be. 
The scriptures have so many ways of describing total depravity, the state that we had before salvation. The person who is totally depraved is said to be under sin, Galatians 3.22, said to be spiritually dead, Romans 5.12, said to be under condemnation, John 3.18 and 36. The totally depraved person is said to be under the power of Satan, Colossians 1.13. This person is said by the Bible to be lost, Ephesians 2.12. The person who is totally depraved before salvation cannot initiate his or her own salvation. They cannot even initiate their own faith. Models of total depravity that the New Testament present. The person who is without Christ is dead and needing life, Ephesians 2.1. Sick and needing healing, Luke 5, verse 31. Poor and needing God's riches, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Polluted and needing cleansing, Titus 1.15. In darkness and needing light, John 8.12. In prison, and needing release. This is an Old Testament reference. Isaiah 42, verse 7. Before Christ, before salvation, we were as bad off before holy God as we possibly could have been. And the person who works beside you in your workplace without Jesus is in that same state tonight. Maybe the person, your spouse, that you sleep in the same bed with is in that state without Christ. Tonight, the person you study with at school without Jesus is in that state tomorrow morning. The persons you transact with this week, if they do not bow the knee to Jesus in faith for salvation, they are in that state. We ought to be weeping witnesses. And so the great apostle Paul's heart was chock full of great sorrow and unceasing grief because his Jewish countrymen were accursed and separated from Christ. But we go on. Verses 4 and 5 list off uh, nine advantages which all Jews had. And we might add that these nine advantages are advantages that God's chosen people still have tonight. Nine advantages. Are you ready? Verses 4 and 5. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 and then double back. Who are Israelites? To whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. Nine advantages. Advantage one, they were Israelites. See it there. Who are Israelites? That's the first advantage. That is, they were God's chosen people, people who prevailed with God in prayer, according to Genesis 32, 24 to 28. That's the first advantage. The second advantage the Jews had was that they were adopted as sons who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. If you're taking notes, Exodus 4, 22 and Hosea 11, 1. The Jewish person has been adopted by God into God's family. Advantage three, they were acquainted with the Lord's glory. The Jewish people were acquainted with the Lord's glory in a unique way that many times the Gentiles were not acquainted with God's glory in the Old Testament. They were acquainted with the Lord's glory, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory. 
They were acquainted with God's glory. Further study in Exodus 13, 21 and 22, Exodus 40, 34 and 35. The fourth advantage cited in our passage that Jews have, they were beneficiaries of God's covenants. The Jews uniquely were the beneficiaries of God's covenant, still looking at verse 4, who are the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of the covenants. What covenants? The Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. The Mosaic covenant, also called the law, Exodus 20. The Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy chapter 29. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31. They were recipients of these covenantal agreements that God struck with them out of his love, out of his grace, out of his choice. All of these covenants were unconditional covenants except the Mosaic covenant, the law. All of the promises God made to Abraham about the Palestinian geography and land, about the throne of David and about the new heart for a stone heart were all unconditional covenants given to the Jews. And they had them. The only conditional covenant was the Mosaic law. God said to them, his nation, if you keep my law, I will bless you. If you break my law, I will curse you. The Jews had great advantage. They were beneficiaries of the Lord's covenants. And may I add that the church gets to be the beneficiary of the new covenant of Jeremiah chapter 31. We've been given flesh hearts where once our hearts were stoned. Advantage five. They were given the law as their national constitution. Still with verse four. Who are the Israelites according to uh, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law. Oh yes, the Jews were given the Ten Commandments as their na nation's constitution. God signaled them out, gave them those laws on those tablets twice that they could have a constitution to be a nation dedicated to God's glory, to the bringing of God's truth and God's Savior and God's salvation to the furthest corners of the earth. Oh, they had advantage. But that wasn't all. There was a sixth advantage still in verse 4. They were prescribed the temple service. Still with verse 4. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service. The Jews as a nation were given the temple service. What does that mean? It means that they were given first the tabernacle a portable temple that they moved and set up and took down and set up and took down in the wilderness. That if you were in a helicopter over the tabernacle and it was set up according to God's commands for the tabernacle, you would see that all the furnishings in the tabernacle were in the configuration of a cross. Foreshadowing the lamb for sinners slain, Jesus. They had such great advantage they have still such great advantage, but there's more. They were possessors of God's many and gracious promises, still in verse 4, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. They were given many and gracious promises from God, which began 
with the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, in Genesis 3:15, all the way back right after the fall when God promised that he would provide one who would bruise Satan on the head, although that Satan would bruise him on the heel. A picture of the great pain of Calvary, but the great successful victory of Calvary, defeating Satan as Savior, Messiah, Jesus. Oh, they were the possessors of many of God's gracious promises, beginning with Genesis 3.15. And in fact, the summation verse in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 20, which says, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. All the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, which are rife, which are many, are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Oh, they have advantage. They had it then and they have it now. But there's more. Now going over to verse 5, but I'll roll through verse 4 to get to verse 5. Who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Who are the fathers? Whose are the fathers? Whose are the fathers? Advantage number eight. They were blessed by their patriarchs of the faith. Romans 11.28 says that they were beloved for the sake of the fathers. The Jews are beloved for the sake of their patriarchal fathers. And so often in the Old Testament, the summary statement of these patriarchs calls the people of Israel to remember that they are the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who gave his special people those kind of forefathers and patriarchs. He is the God that is their advantage. An advantage nine. They were honored to be the race from which the Savior drew his humanity. 5b, but let me roll it through 4. Who are the Israelites to whom belongs adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is Overall, God blessed forever. Amen. Yes, what an advantage. The Jewish people were the ethnicity, were the race, were the people that God sovereignly chose to give their humanity to the Savior. In Jesus Christ's humanity, he was Jewish in his humanity. And so in Matthew 1, 21, Mary and Joseph were told, you shall call his name Jesus. Hebrew, Yeshua, Savior. Jehovah is Savior, or the Lord is salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Oh, yes. What advantages? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ 
for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. But you know what, church? Advantages are only helpful if they're seized and taken up upon. Advantages are only helpful if they are seized, received, taken up upon, if they make a difference in your life. And so going back to the Jews' advantages, if you're chosen, you must choose the one who chose you. And if you're adopted, you must live like the child of your adopted dad. And if you've seen God's glory, you can't be high-handed in your sinning. And if you have covenants, then you should be grateful and loyal to the one who graciously struck the covenants with you. And if you have a law, a law, frankly, that you can't keep, you should embrace the God-provided Savior who did keep the law to have as your Savior from your shortcomings. And if you know about the tabernacle's pattern for atonement and worship, you must expect, expect blood cleansing to be the ultimate solution for sin. And as I said, if you have a tabernacle blueprint, you ought to see that the, the furniture is to be arranged in the shape of a cross. Oh yes, spiritual advantages don't mean a lot unless you take up upon them, unless you live in light of them. And if you have many divine promises, you must not live oblivious to those promises. You must not live idolatrous in those promises. You cannot play the spiritual harlot, which the Old Testament time and time again states that that's the people of God the Jews did. They played the spiritual harlot. And if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are your forefathers, you can't claim that you don't know that the true God rewards faith in him. You can't look at the life of Abraham without seeing faith rewarded. You can't look at the life of Isaac and not see faith rewarded. You can't look at the life of Jacob and miss that faith is rewarded. And if you can figure out that one of your seed, one of your countrymen, will bruise Satan on the head, Genesis 3.15, then you should recognize him when he comes among you fulfilling all kinds of messianic prophecy. Advantages are really advantages only as they are seen and seized. How about you and me? I imagine that there's not many Jewish converts to Christ here tonight. There may be some. I'd be delighted if there are. How about us? How about us Gentiles? Do we have any advantages? We've seen nine advantages in the text that the Jews have. Do we have any advantages as Gentiles, non-Jewish believers? You bet we do. 
We have many advantages. Number one, we have a 100% completed Bible. 100% completed Bible. We have the Holy Spirit living in us full time. He doesn't visit us to do exploits. He's in us full time. We have the advantage, number three, that we live in the shadow of the cross. We live after the cross. The cross can bring perspective and worldview to everything going forward because we live in the shadow of the cross. Number four, the advantage. We live in the age of grace when whosoever will may come to Christ for salvation. Number five, we have the advantage that we, we've been sent to do the work of evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. We are ambassadors for Christ. We beg and implore people to be reconciled to God through Christ. Sixth advantage we have as Gentiles, we have the family of God called the church. There was no notion of the church in the Old Testament. The incredible body of Christ is a mystery, a previously undisclosed truth in the eternal mind and plan of God that wasn't revealed until the New Testament. We are the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, endowed with at least one spiritual gift at the moment of conversion, given the task, the privilege, the responsibility of making disciples of all the nations until Jesus returns for us as bride. We are the church. We are advantaged. There's more. Seventh advantage, we have the hope of the rapture of the church in heaven. Christ is coming again, perhaps very soon, to gather us out as his bride in the twinkling of an eye. We have that advantage. We have, we have insight into that a future event because we have the New Testament. We have 1 Thessalonians 4 and we have all the other parts of the New Testament. What an advantage. We've had the advantage of seeing all the biblical prophecies that have been fulfilled since the completion of God's word, the Bible, until now. Archaeological finds continue in Israel. Every week, something is found such that science eventually catches up with what the Bible says happened. We have that advantage. Ninth advantage, we each have at least one spiritual gift from our conversions forward to utilize for the good of the body and the glory of God. Oh, we have advantages. It's not just the Jews who had advantages. We have advantages as Gentiles. We have advantages as a church. We've been grafted in to God's family, which was originally Jewish only. We've been grafted into the olive tree of the believing Jews to be the Gentile branch of the olive tree, the church of Jesus Christ. No partition in between. Believing Jews with believing Gentiles. Oh, we have our advantages. We have huge advantages. And if Paul was a weeping witness back in his day for his people, the Jews, we must be weeping witnesses in our day. Surrounded by people a heartbeat away from hell. We must be weeping witnesses. George Sweeting, in his book, The No Guilt Guide to Witnessing, that's a great title, The No Guilt Guide to Witnessing, tells that during a serious shortage of currency in Great Britain, Oliver Cromwell selected a group of men to search for silver to meet the need. Several months later, they filed this report, quote, we have searched the empire in vain to find silver. To our dismay, we found none except in the great cathedrals, 
where the saints are constructed of choice silver. When he heard that discouraging report, Cromwell issued this order, let's melt down the saints and put them into circulation. That's what we need. We need to be melted down and put into circulation. It's going to cost to have a credible witness for Jesus with lost people. It's going to cost our time. It's going to cost our convenience. It's going to cost our reputation, perhaps. It's going to cost money, perhaps. It's time for the saints to be melted down and put into circulation. Oswald Smith of the People's Church in Toronto said this, the body of Christ is not a pleasure cruiser on its way to heaven, but a battleship stationed on the very gates of hell. We have enough churches that are carnival cruise lines. We need more churches that are battleships on the brink of hell. Recently, a survey was done in the United States in the Evangelical Church. These are people that know the gospel, people who say they believe the gospel, people who are not just um, loosely Christians. These are people that we would call brothers and sisters in Christ in America. In this recent survey, one of the questions gave this result. Only 22% of Americans who say that they are born again see that having their children be born again as being an indicator of good parenting. Only 22% said that they felt that seeing their children to be born again was a good indicator of good parenting. Behind getting a good education and achieving financial independence. So think, think with me on this. These are true Christians in America who think that the better indicators of good parenting for them is if their kids get a good education and if they achieve financial independence and not get to heaven. That's a problem. To me, this startling result indicates one of two things. Either 78% of those Christian Americans who were surveyed believe that everybody gets to heaven, or 78% of those who answered that question believe that there is no hell. Either way, either way, that kind of Christianity will never be a weeping witness of the gospel, not even at home with their own children. God help us. Well, one of our pastors told us we were going to hell, but he seemed glad about it. The new pastor says we're going to hell too, but he cries about it. Will you stand with me? Lord, I thank you for the precious saints of yours that have come out tonight.
to worship you in spirit and in truth and to hear your word preached. I thank you, Lord, that each and every one of us has a circle of influence that you've granted to us. And in those circles of influence are precious people who are not yet Christians. Lord, I pray that you would keep us on our knees for these souls, that we would pray for them to come to know Jesus Christ, that we would commit ourselves to not only living a Christian life before them, but to speaking a gospel to them. Lord, I would pray that we would have the pleasure and the joy of seeing people saved by your wonderful Savior and by your incredible grace as we tell the good news, as we are weeping witnesses. Lord, help people to understand that without Jesus, they are as bad off before you as they can be, but that you are willing to pardon, to cleanse, to make new. Help us to articulate that in your power, with your love, and with clarity. Thank you for this passage that tells us the Apostle Paul's heart of great empathy for his countrymen who were lost. And oh God, give us an empathy for our people who are lost. Start, Lord, with the man in the pulpit. Give me empathy. And give empathy to each person in the sound of this prayer and sermon. Lord, to the end, that much will be made of you that we will fall in line with your wonderful plan to save men and women, boys and girls from sin and hell. These things we pray, Lord, expectant that you will answer, for you do all things well and you are faithful. And we pray in Jesus' precious name together in God's incredible body said, Amen. Amen.